Chapter Five, Part Three, of the Worst Journey in the World, Volume One by Apsley Cherry Garrard. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Five: The Depot Journey, Part Three. It will be seen that Priestley missed three points. First, he was left with a conventional but very erroneous impression of Amundsen as a blunt Norwegian sailor, not in the least an intellectual. Second, he thought Amundsen had camped on the ice and not on terra firma. Third, he thought Amundsen was going to the Pole by the old route over the Beardmore. The truth was that Amundsen was an explorer of the markedly intellectual type, rather Jewish than Scandinavian, who had proved his sagacity by discovering solid footing for the winter by pure judgment. For the moment, let it be confessed, we all underrated Amundsen, and could not shake off the feeling that he had stolen a march on us. Back to McMurdo Sound, and the news left at Hut Point. Then the two ponies which had been allotted to Campbell were swum ashore at Cape Evans, since he thought that now they would be of more use to Scott than to himself. Subsequent events proved the extreme usefulness of this unselfish act. The Terranova would steam north and try and land Campbell's party on the extreme northern shores of Queen Victoria Land. At the same time there was so little coal left that it might be necessary to go straight back to New Zealand. Campbell regretted not being able to see Scott, supposing that the altered circumstances caused Scott to wish to rearrange his parties, and also because Amundsen had asked Campbell to land his party at the Bay of Wales, giving him the area to the east to explore, and Campbell did not wish to accept before getting Scott's permission. As we know now, coal ran so short that it came to an alternative of dumping Campbell, his men, and gear hastily on the beach at Cape Adair, or taking them back to New Zealand. As one member of the crew said, Exploring is all very well in its way, but it is a thing which can be very easily overdone. The ship was as ready to get rid of them as they were to get rid of the ship. They were landed, working to their waists in the surf, and the ship got safely back to New Zealand. Scott decided that the period of waiting until the pony party arrived from one ton should be employed in sledging stores out to corner camp, but the dog-teams were done. "'The dogs are thin as rakes. They are ravenous and very tired. I feel this should not be, and that it is evident that they are underfed. The ration must be increased next year, and we must have some properly thought-out diet. The biscuit alone is not good enough.' In addition, Several dogs were feeling the effects of the injuries due to the crevasse incident. There remained the men and the one pony which had survived out of the three sent back from Bluff Depot, namely Jimmy Pig. The party started on Friday, February 24th, marching by day. It consisted of Scott, Crean and myself, with one sledge and tent, Lieutenant Evans, Atkinson and Ford, with a second sledge and tent, and Keon leading James Pig. On the second night out we saw the pony party pass us in the distance on their way to safety camp. At corner camp Scott decided to leave Lieutenant Evans's party to come in with the pony more slowly, and himself to push on with Crean and myself at top speed for safety camp. We made a forced march well into the night, doing twenty-six miles for the day, and camped some ten miles from safety camp, where the pony party must by this time have arrived. The events which followed were disastrous and the steps which led to a catastrophe which entailed the loss of much of our best transport, and only by a miracle did not lead to the loss of several lives, were complicated. At this moment, the night of February 26th, there were three parties on the barrier. 
Behind Scott was Lieutenant Evans's party, and the pony, James Pig. Scott himself was camped within easy marching distance of safety camp with Crean and myself. At safety camp were the two dog teams with Wilson and Mears, while the pony party from One Ton Depot had just arrived with five ponies, which for the most part were thin, hungry and worn. Between safety camp and Hut Point lay the frozen sea which might or might not break up this year, but we knew from our observations a few days before that the ice was in a shaky condition. At that time the ice sheet extended some seven miles to the north of Hut Point. The season was fast closing in. Temperatures of fifty or sixty degrees of frost had been common for the last fortnight, and this was bad for the ponies. We had been unfortunate in having several severe blizzards, and it was already clear that it was these autumn blizzards, more than cold temperatures and soft surfaces, which the ponies could not endure. Scott was most anxious to get the animals into such shelter as we could make for them at Hut Point. The next morning, February 27th, we woke to a regular cold autumn blizzard, very thick, wind force nine, and temperature about minus twenty. This was disheartening, and indeed with our six worn ponies still on the barrier, the outlook for them was discouraging. The blizzard came to an end the next morning. Scott must take up the first part of that day's story. Packed up at six a.m., and marched into safety camp. Found everyone very cold and depressed. Wilson and Mears had had continuous bad weather since we left. Bowers and Oates since their arrival. The blizzard had raged for two days. The animals looked in sorry condition, but all were alive. The wind blew keen and cold from the east. There could be no advantage in waiting here, and soon all arrangements were made for a general shift to Hut Point. Packing took a long time. The snowfall had been prodigious, and parts of the sledges were three or four feet under drift. About four o'clock the two dog-teams got safely away, then the pony party prepared to go. As the cloths were stripped from the ponies, the ravages of the blizzard became evident. The animals without exception were terribly emaciated, and Weary Willie was in a pitiable condition. The plan was for the ponies to follow the dog-tracks, our small party to start last, and get in front of the ponies on the sea-ice. I was very anxious about the sea-ice passage, owing to the spread of the water-holes. The two dog-teams left with Mears and Wilson some time before the ponies, and for the moment they go out of this story. Bower's pony, Uncle Bill, was ready first, and he started with him. We got three more ponies harnessed, punched, knobby, and guts, and tried to harness Weary Willie but when we attempted to lead him forward he immediately fell down. Scott rapidly reorganised. He sent Crean and me forward with the three better ponies to join Bowers, now waiting a mile ahead. Oates and Gran he kept with himself to try and help the sick pony. His diary tells how We made desperate efforts to save the poor creature, got him once more on his legs, gave him a hot oat mash. Then, after a wait of an hour, Oates let him off, and we packed the sledge and followed on ski. Five hundred yards from the camp the poor creature fell again, and I felt it was the last effort. We camped, built a snow wall round him, and did all we possibly could to get him to his feet. Every effort was fruitless, though the poor thing made pitiful struggles. Towards midnight we propped him up as comfortably as we could and went to bed. Wednesday, March the 1st, a.m. Our pony died in the night. It is hard to have got him back so far only for this. It is clear that these blizzards are terrible for the poor animals. Their coats are not good, but even with the best of coats it is certain 
they would lose condition badly if caught in one, and we cannot afford to lose condition at the beginning of a journey. It makes a late start necessary for next year. Well, we have done our best, and bought our experience at heavy cost. Now every effort must be bent on saving the remaining animals. A letter from Bowers home, which certainly does not overstate the adventures of himself and the two men sent forward to join him, is probably the best description of the incidents which followed. It will be remembered that Crean and I, with three ponies, were sent from safety camp to join him. He was already leading one pony. Night was beginning to fall, and the light was bad, but from the edge of the barrier the two dog-teams could still be seen as black dots in the distance, towards Cape Armitage. On the night of February 28th, I led off with my pony, and was surprised at the delay in the others leaving, knowing nothing of Weary's collapse. Over the edge of the barrier I went, and at the bottom of the snow incline awaited the others. To my surprise, Cherry and Crean appeared, with Punch, Nobby and Guts in a string, and then I heard the reason for Oates and Scott not having come on. My orders were to push on to Hot Point, over the sea ice, without delay, and to follow the dogs. Previously I had been told to camp on the sea ice, only in case of the beasts being unable to go on. We had four pretty heavy sledges, as we were taking six weeks' man-food and oil to the hut, as well as a lot of gear from the depot, and pony-food, etc. Unfortunately, the dogs misunderstood their orders, and instead of piloting us, dashed off on their own. We saw them like specks in the distance, in the direction of the old seal-crack. Having crossed this, they wheeled to the right in the direction of Cape Armitage, and disappeared into a black, indefinite mist, which seemed to pervade everything in that direction. We heard afterwards that in a mile or two they came to some alarming signs, and turning made for the gap where they got up onto the land about midnight. I plugged on in their tracks till we came to this seal-crack, which was an old pressure ridge, running many miles southwest from Pram Point. We considered the ice behind this crack, over which we had just come, fast ice. It was older ice than that beyond, as it had undoubtedly frozen over first. Having crossed the crack, we streaked on for Cape Armitage. The animals were going badly, owing to the effects of the blizzard, and frequent stoppages were necessary. On coming to some shaky ice, we headed farther west, as there was always some bad places off the Cape, and I thought it better to make a good circuit. Crean, who had been over the ice recently, told me it was all right farther round. However, about a mile further on I began to have misgivings. The cracks became too frequent to be pleasant, and although the ice was from five to ten feet thick, one does not like to see water squelching between them, as we did later. It spells motion, and motion on sea ice means breakage. I shoved on in the hope of getting on better ice around the cape, but at last came a moving crack, and that decided me to turn back. We could see nothing owing to the black mist, Everything looked solid as ever, but I knew enough to mistrust moving ice, however solid it seemed. It was a beastly march back, dark, gloomy, and depressing. The beasts got more and more down in their spirits, and stopped so frequently that I thought we would never reach the seal-crack. I said to Cherry, however, that I would take no risks, and camp well over on the other side on the old sound ice if we could get there. This we managed to do eventually. Here there was soft snow, whereas on the seaside of the crack it was hard. That is the reason we lost the dog's tracks at once on crossing. Even over this crack I thought it best to march as far in as possible. We got well into the bay, as far as our exhausted ponies would drag, 
before I camped and threw up the walls, fed the beasts, and retired to feed ourselves. We had only the primus with the missing cap, and it took over one and a half hours to heat up the water. However, we had a cup of pemmican. It was very dark, and I mistook a small bag of curry powder for the cocoa bag, and made cocoa with that mixed with sugar. Crean drank his right down before discovering anything was wrong. It was 2 p.m. before we were ready to turn in. I went out and saw everything quiet. The mist still hung to the west, but you could see a good mile and all was still. The sky was very dark over the strait, though, the unmistakable sign of open water. I turned in. Two and a half hours later I awoke hearing a noise. Both of my companions were snoring. I thought it was that and was on the point of turning in again, having seen that it was only four-thirty, when I heard the noise again. I thought, my pony is at the oats, and went out. I cannot describe either the scene or my feelings. I must leave those to your imagination. We were in the middle of a floating pack of broken-up ice. The tops of the hills were visible, but all below was thin mist, and as far as the eye could see there was nothing solid. It was all broken up, and heaving up and down with the swell. Long black tongues of water were everywhere. The floe on which we were had split right under our picketing line, and cut poor Guts's wall in half. Guts himself had gone, and a dark streak of water alone showed the place where the ice had opened under him. The two sledges, securing the other end of the line, were on the next floe, and had been pulled right to the edge. Our camp was on a floe not more than thirty yards across. I shouted to Cherry and Crean, and rushed out on my socks to save the two sledges. The two floes were touching farther on, and I dragged them to this place and got them on to our floe. At that moment our own floe split in two, but we were all together in one piece. Then I got my finesco on, remarking that we had been in a few tight places, but this was about the limit. I have been told since that I was quixotic not to leave everything and make for the safety. You will understand, however, that I never for one moment considered the abandonment of anything. We packed up camp and harnessed up our ponies in remarkably quick time. When ready to move, I had to decide which way to go. Obviously towards Cape Armitage was impossible, and to the eastward also, as the wind was from that direction, and we were already floating west toward the open sound. Our only hope lay to the south, and thither I went. We found the ponies would jump the intervals well. At least Punch would, and the other two would follow him. My idea was never to separate, but to get everything onto one floe at a time, and then wait till it touched or nearly touched another in the right direction, and then jump the ponies over and drag the four sledges across ourselves. In this way we made slow but sure progress. While one was acting, all was well. The waiting for a lead to close was the worst trial. Sometimes it would take ten minutes or more, but there was so much motion in the ice that sooner or later bump you would go against another piece, and then it was up and over. Sometimes they split, sometimes they bounced back so quickly that only one horse could get over, and then we had to wait again. We had to make frequent detours, and were moving west all the time with the pack. Still, we were getting south too. Very little was said. Crean, like most blue jackets, behaved as if he had done this sort of thing often before. Cherry, the practical, after an hour or two, dug out some chocolate and biscuit during one of our enforced waits, and distributed it. I felt at that time that food was the last thing on earth I wanted, and put it in my pocket. In less than half an hour, though, I had eaten the lot. The ponies behaved as well as my companions, and jumped the flow in great style. 
After getting them on a new floor, we simply left them, and there they stood, chewing at each other's head-ropes or harness, till we were over with the sledges and ready to take them on again. Their implicit thrust in us was touching to behold. A twelve-feet sledge makes an excellent bridge if an opening is too wide to jump. After some hours we saw fast ice ahead, and thanked God for it. Meanwhile a further unpleasantness occurred in the arrival of a host of the terrible killer whales. These were reaping a harvest of seal in the broken-up ice, and cruised among the floes with their immense black fins sticking up, and blowing with a terrific roar. The killer is scientifically known as the orca, and, though far smaller than the sperm and other large whales, is a much more dangerous animal. He is armed with a huge iron jaw and great blunt socket teeth. Killers act in concert too, and as you may remember nearly got ponting when we were unloading the ship by pressing up the thin ice from beneath and splitting it in all directions. It took us over six hours to get close to the fast ice, which proved to be the barrier, some immense chunks of which we actually saw break off and join the pack. Close in the motion was less owing to the jamming up of the ice somewhere farther west. We had only just cleared the strait in time, though, as the, all the ice in the centre, released beyond Cape Armitage, headed off into the middle of the strait, and thence to the Ross Sea. Our spirits rose as we neared the barrier edge, and I made for a big sloping floe, which I expected would be touching, at any rate I anticipated no difficulty. We rushed up the slope towards safety, and were little prepared for the scene that met our eyes at the top. All along the barrier face, a broad lane of water from thirty to forty feet wide extended. This was filled with smashed-up brash ice, which was heaving up and down to the swell like the contents of a cauldron. Gillers were cruising there with fiendish activity, and the barrier edge was a sheer cliff of ice on the other side fifteen to twenty feet high. It was a case of so near and yet so far. Suddenly our great sloping floe carved in two, so we beat a hasty retreat. I selected a sound-looking floe just clear of this turmoil, that was at least ten feet thick, and fairly rounded, with a flat surface. Here we collected everything, and having done all that man could do, we fed the beasts, and took counsel. Cherry and Crean both volunteered to do anything, in the spirit they had shown right through. It appeared of first necessity to communicate with Captain Scott. I guessed his anxiety on our behalf, and, as we could do nothing more, we wanted help of some sort. It occurred to me that a man, working up to windward along the barrier face, might happen upon a floe touching the barrier. It was obviously impossible to take ponies up there anywhere, but an active man might wait his opportunity. Going to windward, too, he could always retreat on to our floe, as the ice was being pushed together in our direction. The next consideration was whom to send. To go myself was out of the question. The problem was whether to send one or both of my companions. As my object was to save the animals and gear, it appeared to me that one man remaining would be helpless in the event of the floe splitting up, as he would be busy saving himself. I therefore decided to send one only. This would have to be Crean, as Cherry, who wears glasses, could not see so well. Both volunteered, but as I say I thought out all the pros and cons, and sent Crean, knowing that at the worst he could get back to us at any time. I sent a note to Captain Scott, and stuffing Crean's pockets with food, we saw him depart. Practical Cherry suggested pitching the tent as a marker of our whereabouts, and having done this, I mounted the theodolite to watch Crean through the telescope. 
The rise and fall of the flow made this difficult, especially as a number of Emperor penguins came up and looked just like men in the distance. Fortunately the sunlight cleared the frost smoke, and as it fell calm our westerly motion began to decrease. The swell started to go down. Outsiders in the centre of the strait, all the ice had gone out and open water remained. We were one of a line of loose floes floating near the barrier edge. Crean was hours moving to and fro before I had the satisfaction of seeing him up on the barrier. I said, thank God one of us is out of the wood, anyhow. It was not a pleasant day that Cherry and I spent all alone there, knowing as we did that it only wanted a zephyr from the south to send us irretrievably out to sea. Still there is satisfaction in knowing that one had done one's utmost, and I felt that having been delivered so wonderfully so far, the same hand would not forsake us at the last. We gave the ponies all they could eat that day. The killers were too interested in us to be pleasant. They had a habit of bobbing up and down, perpendicularly, so as to see over the edge of a floe, in looking for seals. The huge black and yellow heads with sickening pig eyes, only a few yards from us at times, and always around us, are amongst the most disconcerting recollections I have of that day. The immense fins were bad enough, but when they started a perpendicular dodge they were positively beastly. As the day wore on, skewer-girls, looking upon us as certain carrion, settled down comfortably near us to await developments. The swell, however, was getting less and less, and it resolved itself into a question of speed, as to whether the wind or Captain Scott would reach us first. Green had got up into the barrier at great risks to himself, as I gathered afterwards from his very modest account. He had reached Captain Scott some time after his, Scott's, meeting with Wilson. I heard that at the time Captain Scott was very angry with me for not abandoning everything and getting away safely myself. For my own part, I must say that the abandoning of the ponies was the one thing that had never entered my head. It was a long way round, but at 7 p.m. he arrived at the edge of the barrier opposite us with Oates and Crean. Everything was still, and Cherry and I could have got on safe ice at any time during the last half-hour by using the sledge as a ladder. A big overturned fragment had jammed in the lane, between the high flow and the barrier edge, and there being no wind it remained there. However, there was the consideration of the ponies, so we waited. Scott, instead of blowing me up, was too relieved at our safety to be anything but pleased. I said, "'What about the ponies and the sledges?' He said, "'I don't care a damn about the ponies and sledges. It's you I want, and I'm going to see you safe here up on the barrier before I do anything else.' Cherry and I had got everything ready to go, so, dragging up two sledges, we dumped the gear off them, and using them as ladders, one down from the berg on to the buffer of piece of ice, and the other up to the top of the barrier, we got up without difficulty.' Captain Scott was so pleased that I realised the feeling he must have had all day. He had been blaming himself for our deaths, and here we were very much alive. He said, "'My dear chaps, you can't think how glad I am to see you safe. Cherry likewise.' I was all for saving the beasts and the sledges, however, so he let us go back and haul the sledges on to the nearest floe. We did this one by one, and brought the ponies along, while Titus dug down a slope from the barrier edge, in the hope of getting the ponies up. Scott knew more about ice than any of us, and, realising the danger we didn't, still wanted to abandon things. I fought for my point tooth and nail, and got him to concede one article, and then another, and still the ice did not move till we had thrown and hauled up every article onto the barrier, except the two ladders and the ponies. 
To my intense disappointment at this juncture the ice started to move again. Titus had been digging down a road in the barrier's edge, and I hoped to dig down a similar slope from the floe. The snow thus shoveled down would go over the blue ice chunk, cover up the slippery ice, and level it up. It would have taken hours, but it was the only chance of getting the animals up. We dug like fury until Captain Scott peremptorily ordered us up. I ran up on the floe and took the nosebags off the ponies before we got on to the barrier and hauled the sledges up. It was only just in time. There was the faintest south-easterly air, but like a black snake. The lane of water stretched between the ponies and ourselves. It widened almost imperceptibly. Two feet, six feet, ten feet, twenty feet, and, as sick as we were about the ponies, we were glad to be on the safe side of that. We dragged the sledges in a little way, and leaving them there pitched the two tents half a mile further in, for bits of the barrier were continually carving. While supper, it was about three a.m., was being cooked, Scott and I walked down again. The wind had gone to the east, and all the ice was under way. A lane seventy feet wide extended along the barrier edge, and killers were chasing up and down like race-horses. Our three unfortunate beasts were some way out, sailing parallel to the barrier. We returned, and if ever one could feel miserable, I did then. My feelings were nothing to what poor Captain Scott had to endure that day. I at once broached the hopeful side of the subject, remarking that, with the two Campbell had left, we had ten ponies at winter quarters. He said, however, that he had no confidence whatever in the motors, after the way their rollers had become messed up unloading the ship. He had had his confidence in the dogs much shaken on the return journey, and now he had lost the most solid asset, the best of his pony transport. He said, of course we shall have a run for our money next season, but as far as the pole is concerned, I have but very little hope. We had a mournful meal, but after the others turned in I went down again, and by striking across diagonally came abreast of the pony's flow, over a mile away. They were moving west fast, but they saw me, and remained huddled together, not the least disturbed or doubting that we would bring them their breakfast nosebags as usual in the morning. Poor trustful creatures! If I could have done it then, I would gladly have killed them, rather than picture them starving on that floe, out on the Ross Sea, or eaten by the exultant killers that cruised around. After breakfast, Captain Scott sent me to bring up the sledges. It was dead calm again. Hope always springs, so I took his pair of glasses and looked west from the barrier edge. Nearly all the ice had gone, but a medley of floes had been hurled up against a long point of barrier much further west. To my delight I saw three green specks on one of these, the pony rugs, and all four of us legged it back to the tent to tell Captain Scott. We were soon off over the barrier. It was a long way, but we had a tent and some food. Crean had a bad day of snow-blindness, and could see absolutely nothing, so on arrival at the place we pitched the tent and left him there. The ponies were in a much worse place than the day before, but the ice was still there, and some floes actually touched the barrier. After our recent experience, Captain Scott would only let us go on condition that as soon as he gave the order we were to drop everything and run for the barrier. I was in a feverish hurry, and with Titus and Cherry selected a possible route over about six floes and some low brash ice. The hardest jump was the first one, but it was nothing to what they had done the day before, so we put Punch at it. Why he hung fire I cannot think, but he did, at the very edge, and the next moment it was in the water. 
I will draw a veil over the struggle to get the plucky little pony out. We could not manage it. And Titus had at last to put an end to his struggles with a pick. There was now my pony and Nobby. We abandoned that route, while Captain Scott looked out another and longer one by going right out on the sea floors. This we decided on if we could get the animals off their present flow, which necessitated a good jump on any side. Captain Scott said he would have no repetition of Punch's misfortune if he could help it. He would rather kill them on the floor. Anyhow, we rushed old Nobby at the jump, but he refused. It seemed no good, but I rushed him at it again and again. Scott was for killing them. It should be remembered that this ice, with the men on it, might drift away from the barrier at any moment, and then there might be no further chance of saving the men. But I was not, and pretending not to hear him, I rushed the old beast again. He cleared it beautifully, and Titus, seizing the opportunity, ran my pony at it with similar success. We then returned to the barrier and worked along westward till a suitable place for getting up was found. There Scott and Cherry started digging a road, while Titus and I went out via the sea-ice to get the ponies. We had an empty sledge as a bridge or ladder in case of emergency, and had to negotiate about forty floors to reach the animals. It was pretty easy going, though, and we brought them along with great success as far as the two nearest floors. At this place the ice was jammed. Nobby cleared the last jump splendidly, when suddenly, in the open-water pond on one side, a school of over a dozen of the terrible whales arose. This must have flurried my horse just as he was jumping, as instead of going straight he jumped sideways, and just missed the flow with his hind legs. It was another horrible situation, but Scott rushed Nobby upon the barrier, while Titus Cherry and I struggled with poor old Uncle Bill. Why the whales did not come under the ice and attack him I cannot say. Perhaps they were full of seal, perhaps they were so engaged in looking at us on the top of the floor that they forgot to look below. Anyhow, we got him safely as far as the bottom of the barrier cliff, pulling him through the thin ice towards a low patch of brash. Captain Scott was afraid of something happening to us with those devilish whales so close, and was for abandoning the horse right away. I had no eyes or ears for anything but the horse just then, and getting on to the thin brash ice, got the alpine rope fast to each of the pony's forefeet. Crean was too blind to do anything but hold the rescued horse on the barrier, but the other four of us pulled might and main till we got the old horse out and lying on his side. The brash ice was so thin that, had a killer come up then, he would have scattered it and the lot of us into the water like chaff. I was sick with disappointment when I found that my horse could not rise. Titus said, he's done. We shall never get him up alive. The cold water and shock on top of all his recent troubles, had been too much for the undefeated old sportsman. In vain I tried to get him to his feet. Three times he tried, and then fell over backwards into the water again. At that moment a new danger arose. The whole piece of barrier itself started to subside. It had evidently been broken before, and the tide was doing the rest. We were ordered up, and it certainly was all too necessary. Still Titus and I hung over the old Uncle Bill's head, I said, I can't leave him to be eaten alive by those whales. There was a pick lying up on the floor. Titus said, I shall be sick if I have to kill another horse like I did the last. I had no intention that anybody should kill my own horse but myself, and getting the pick I struck where Titus told me. I made sure of my job before we ran up, and jumped the opening in the barrier, carrying a blood-stained pickaxe instead of leading the pony I had almost considered safe. We returned to our old camp, 
that night, March 2nd, with Nobby, the only one saved of the five that left one ton depot. I was fearfully cut up about my pony and punch, but it was better than last night. We knew they would not have to starve, and that all their troubles were now at an end. Before supper, I went for a walk along the barrier with Scott, and the next day we started back. We left one tent, two sledges, and a lot of gear, as Nobby could only pull two light sledges, and we could not pull an excessive weight on that bad surface. As it was, we had over eight hundred pounds on the sledge when we left. It was a glaring day with the surface soft and sandy, a combination of unpleasant circumstances. It took five hours to drag as far as the place we had originally gone down onto the sea ice from the barrier. Evans and his party should now have arrived from corner camp, and as Captain Scott wanted to see if they had left a note at safety camp, I walked up there while the tea was being brewed. It was about one and a quarter miles away, and I found traces of the party in the snow but no note. It fed me up to see the walls so recently occupied by our ponies, and I was glad to leave. The afternoon march was interminable. It seemed as if we would never reach the coast. At last we came to the Pram Point pressure ridges, where the barrier joins the peninsula to the eastward of Cape Armitage. They are waves of ice up to twenty feet in height, running along parallel to each other with a valley in between each, and are only crevassed badly at the outer end as far as we have seen, though there are smaller crevasses right along. We camped in one of these valleys about 9.30 p.m. I was thoroughly tired, so I think was everybody else. We were about a mile from the ice edge, and the problem was where to get Nobby up the precipitous slopes. This was solved by the arrival of Evans, Atkinson, Ford and Keon about midnight. They had seen us coming in from the heights and had come down for news. Teddy Evans had arrived the day before and, being warned off the barrier edge by a note left by Captain Scott, had made for the land with his party and one horse, Jimmy Pig. He had found a good way up a mile or so farther east, almost under Castle Rock. He had walked to Hut Point with Atkinson the next day and heard of the loss of Cherry, myself and the animals from Bill Wilson and Mears, who had been left there to look after their teams. I hadn't seen Atkinson for quite a while when we met this time. End of chapter 5, part 3